Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans chapter 1. We're reading verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray. And Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would send out your light and that you would send out your truth and that you would lead us to yourself. We come weak and we come feeble, we come dependent, but we trust that you will send your spirit and teach us and guide us. And so speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Several months ago, I watched a documentary that was titled The Social Dilemma. You can find it on Netflix and may find it of some value. But it brought something to awareness for me that I was vaguely knowledgeable of, and that was just the saturation of messages that exist inside of our culture. That we live in a society that's saturated with messages from all directions, that creates a certain dynamic for us in which it's difficult to know truth from error. It's difficult to know what degree to emphasize something, to whether to prioritize and acknowledge a message or not. And it puts us in this dilemma where we don't know exactly what to do and what's important and what's right and what's wrong. And it can create a paralysis on our side where we don't know how to respond. We have it on our televisions. We have it on our computers as we use the internet. We have it on our phones. We're surrounded by it and can be completely overwhelmed. And one of the critical things for us, as those who seek to listen and to hear God speak today, is that we allow his message uniquely to have this certain priority. And this is what happens for us here in Romans 1. In the very first verse, Paul is contending that this message among all the messages of the world, that it is this message that we must hear. It is a unilateral communication that's coming from heaven, God speaking to you and to me today, communicating a certain message that he calls the gospel of God. And in all the messages that you receive day in and day out, of all the messages that are currently bombarding your mobile devices right now, there is one message that's critical for us to receive one message that we must adhere to, one message that we are to be supple before. And so Paul begins by explaining three things as he identifies himself to this church that he had not met. He identifies his master, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He identifies his office, that he was an apostle. That is one who was a witness of the resurrection, who was then commissioned to go out into the nations. And then he identifies his purpose. That is that he was set apart for the gospel of God. All of this indicating one thing, that this gospel of God that he had been set apart for was a gospel that was from God. It had its origin and source in God. God then commissioned a representative, a messenger, to go out, an emissary, to go out into the world. And this is where he is contending with us. That this is the most unique message of all messages. That it is gospel, that is good news. This word in the Bible is extremely significant. In the Old Testament, it was used to announce the victory of God over sin and death. In the New Testament world, particularly in the Roman Empire, the word gospel was used to announce things that were related to the emperor. The accession of a new emperor or the birth of a son, a gospel would be sent out. And so Paul is straining with his first century audience, and he's straining with you here today to communicate that this is the most important message because its source and its origin is from God. And there's a unilateral, one-way conversation taking place in which God is speaking about himself to us, about his design, his purposes, and his plans. It is a message from God to us about God, a message we desperately need to listen to. And it's significant because it contradicts so many of our modern notions about what it means to know God. When we talk about the knowledge of God today, what we're often discussing is a certain search or a quest in which we're figuring out who God is And we're accumulating data through different experiences and through different sources. We're then curating that and deciding what is true and what is false, what is light and what is dark. And here's the essential problem, though, with the modern quest for the knowledge of God, that when we see it as a search or a quest that we undertake, that itself is a human project. And what is being communicated to us here is that this is no human project in which we get to be the judge of truth and error, of light and darkness, but rather there is a one-way divine communication coming from heaven to us in which God is revealing himself definitively, and it happens in this message that we call the gospel of God. The good news being declared to all the nations of God's victory. It comes from God to us. And as Paul introduces us to this gospel, in these first seven verses of perhaps his magnum opus, his longest and most complete theological letter many would judge, what we'll see is three things particularly about this gospel He will lay out for us its content. He will also discuss its goal. And he will also take us into its power. And as he discusses the content, the goal, and the power of the gospel, he's giving a preview for us of what we will see over the next 16 chapters. This communication from God to us about God. And so let's look at each of these. First, the content of the gospel. 
After introducing his office and his mission and also his master, he goes on in verse 2 to say this, which he, referring to God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. And so Paul explains here that this is not a new message that's coming to these Roman Christians. It hasn't just been developed in the last 20 years. But rather, this was a message that reaches back into the Old Testament, that there's a unity and a continuity of Scripture, that all the covenants and the promises of the Old Testament, they were pointing to one who is the eternal Son, who has eternally existed with God. He is the second person of the Trinity, is Jesus, and that he is the content of this gospel. He's the content of this good news. And when we speak of the gospel, we are always speaking concerning the Son. Calvin captures it well for us. He says, in this important passage, Paul teaches us that the whole gospel is contained in Jesus. To move even a step from Jesus means to withdraw oneself from the gospel. And that when we come to discuss what the gospel is, this is who we must be centered on. Jesus is the object and he is the center of the gospel. He proceeds in verses 3 to then give us more information about this Jesus, this eternal son. Who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. We are now given information about this eternal son who took on flesh. He was incarnate among us. And then we learn that he was declared or appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Now, this is important to understand rightly what is being said here. It's not that Jesus becomes the Son of God suddenly. No, the eternal Son was appointed the Son of God in power. The in power is the important modifier there that we must appreciate. That what is being said is that Jesus has a new function in relationship to the world. After being humbled and taking on flesh, Jesus then goes down into death. He's raised from the dead. He is resurrected. He then is enthroned, ascends to God's right hand, and he takes up rule over the nations of the earth. This is the Son of God in power, and it is the Spirit that has raised him from this death. And so he has defeated death and sin. And friends, when we are dealing with the gospel, it is these central facts that we are to be centered on. This is the content. If we're not discussing the eternal son, who is the mediator of creation, who then in time and space took on flesh and dwelled among us and died a brutal and humble death on a cross, but then who was vindicated and raised then no matter how beautiful our church buildings are, no matter how nice of Bibles we have, no matter how much money we give, we are not dealing with the gospel. That the gospel is centered on this man, Jesus Christ. As a young seminary student, I had opportunity to take a class with Tim Keller, who many of you may know, the well-known 
Presbyterian pastor from New York City. The class was too large, and so the first year divinity students were not allowed into the inner sanctum. They set up a video camera, which was a new invention at that point, and he was piped into the outer court of the Gentiles where we eagerly watched. It was a class on preaching. And one of the things I remember him telling us was a story of a friend, an African-American friend, who was discussing the importance of centering the sermon upon Christ and keeping Christ at the center of the gospel. And his African-American friend had a woman in the congregation who would help the preacher when he was not centering his message on the gospel. And if she thought that the preacher was introducing innovations and things that were outside of Scripture and not centered upon Jesus, she would start to say, get him up, get him up. And what she meant was get him out. And friends, it's critical for us not perhaps to begin to engage in that phrase, <laughs> but to recognize the point that the content of the gospel is found in Jesus, that he is the central focus. And when the church begins to step away from him, when we withdraw ourselves from him, even in matters of emphasis, we find ourselves losing the gospel that is contained in Christ. And when we step away from that, we're stepping away from Jesus and we need to get from behind the lectern. We need to get from behind our Bible study positions, whatever it is, leadership that we may have, that we're out of line with the truth of God at that point. And so we stay centered on the content of the gospel. This is what we'll see in the book of Romans, that all of scripture is pointing to Jesus. And we are to be drawn into him. This is the gospel's content. Second, we see the goal of the gospel. So we follow Paul's logic in the verse 5 of this long sentence. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. The plans and the purposes of God are made known in this Jesus. And the goal, the plan and the purpose of God is the obedience of faith among all the nations of the earth. We have to remember that when Paul writes this letter to the Roman church, he was unknown to them, to many of them in person. And he was planning to use Rome as a staging point for his mission as he went to the ends of the earth, which was Spain. That was the end of the earth for Paul, and he was going to take the gospel to the farthest reaches of the Roman Empire. This was his design. And so we have to grasp what he means by this phrase, the obedience of faith. There's two main ways that this has been understood some think what Paul is referring to is the obedience that springs from or comes out of faith. It's a potential rendering. There's another major option, and that is to understand the phrase as the obedience which consists in faith. That is that the obedience he is speaking of is faith, 
that what it means to obey Jesus is to believe in him. And it is the second option that I think is Paul's focus here. That what he is saying the goal of the gospel is, is to bring people from every tribe and tongue into the family of God, reconciled through Jesus, brought together through faith in Christ. That that primal obedience, that is the beginning of all obedience, is to believe and trust that Jesus in his death satisfies the debt of our sins. And so the nations obey Jesus by believing him as the eternal son who's come into time and taken on flesh, died on their behalf, and been raised from the dead by the spirit of holiness. What's so critical for us to appreciate about this in the modern world was in the late 40s, the Jewish people were sent out of the city of Rome. Claudius found, he was the emperor at the time, found that they were rebellious, perhaps fighting over this new Christian sect. And so they were exiled from the city of Rome. But then in 54 AD, Nero, the new emperor, after Claudius' death, allowed the Jewish people to return. And so Jews, whether they were Christian or not, were sent out of the city. But then in 54, they all return. And so you can imagine if you were a Jewish Christian and were exiled from the city of Rome, you lost your church and had to go elsewhere. But then in 54, you were welcomed back. But suddenly, your church has changed. There were people known as Gentiles there who also believed in Jesus. And friends, this is the essential conflict. One of the things that is going on pastorally in this letter to the Romans were Jews and Gentiles, people from very different backgrounds, the people who possessed the law and the covenant and the promise, who had known the scriptures, and then the people who had not, but who had been drawn into faith in Jesus because now they were living together in one family. This is what they're called to. If you turn over to chapter 15, verse 7, as Paul draws his argument to a close, he says, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This was the goal of the gospel, one reconciled family of people who despite class, despite race, despite any other social division that human beings can create, were sitting together in one church and counted as equals. There were most likely many fellowships there in the city of Rome. And so he's not talking about one physical church, but one church gathered together with one common faith, no superiority among them, no arrogance, no boasting of one being better than the other, but all equal on the, fa- on the count of the fact that they are sinners before God, reconciled by one mediator, Jesus. This is the beauty of the gospel. It changes our social relationships. It changes the ways that we relate to one another. It changes the ways that we prioritize those relations. And this is the goal of the gospel, to create that new community built around the eternal Son, who came and took on flesh and died on our behalf and was raised. Finally, in this 
sweeping introduction. We also learn of the power of this gospel. As Paul finishes one of his infamous long run-on sentences, this is what he says in verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. It's critical here to note where the emphasis lies. The emphasis is given to us in three ways. First, we're told that we're called to belong. That is, we're called into the family of God through Jesus. Then we are told that we are loved by God. Then we are told once again that we've been called to be saints. That is, we've been granted this status that we do not deserve, called into something that is outside of us. And so the primary focus is this power that resides in the love of God, that it's an effective love, that it accomplishes his purposes, that it can't be thwarted and it can't be stopped, that this love is powerful, it's creational, it creates and affects what it intends to. And this power of the gospel is the primary fact of God's love. The power of the gospel is not found in you. It's not found in your abilities. It's not found in achievements. It's not found in accolades you may receive. It's not found inside of your capacities. It's not found in accomplishments. No, the power of the gospel lies outside of you. And this is why the gospel is a one-way communication that comes from God to us. Because the communication about God to us from God. That this is the only way of human salvation. The salvation because of our rebellion against God is not something that we can conjure up. We can't figure out the knowledge of God. We can't go on a quest to sort it out that God has to reveal himself to us. And he does so in the message of the gospel that is concerning his son. And this reveals the love of God to us. And friends, this is the entire message of the letter to the Romans, one that we will take a long and slow tour through this year. As we patiently await the end of COVID, we're going to patiently wait on learning more deeply from God about his grace concerning his son. And the goal is to be overwhelmed by that, to allow that love that is revealed to control us, knowing that one died for all, that we might die and live for him. Friends, this is the beauty of the gospel, the one-way communication from God. And so let's ask him for his help that we get lost and overwhelmed in what it means to be loved by him. Let's pray. Father, we do rejoice in all that you have revealed, for if you had not revealed yourself to us, we would be lost and blind, sitting in darkness. We cannot conjure up the knowledge of you. We cannot work our way towards you. No, you must come to us, and you have done so in Jesus. And now you have your great 
purpose and plan, the goal of reconciling the nations to yourself. And you've made your power known in your calling and in your love. We have experienced these things, and so fill us with gratitude and thankfulness, and draw us ever deeper into them in these coming weeks and months.